Amen. The power of Christ <clears throat> that holds us fast, that will not let us go. Thank you for that wonderful reminder, Aaron, and praise team. Uh, it's good to be in the house of the Lord today. I'm excited about um, our Wednesday night, thanks, Brad, our Wednesday night series that we're doing uh, called Work and Witness. We've been uh, looking at how our work and our faith intersect. And uh, we had a lawyer panel last week, which was interesting. Jared said, if there's any profession that needs redeeming, it's lawyers. And then we had architects the week before that. And this week we're going to have, because we're in Music City, we're going to have a music industry panel with a couple of record uh, label owners and industry professionals, a couple of touring musicians as well. Uh, should be very interesting to hear how they navigate that kind of world of the music industry as Christians and how their faith intersects with that role, uh, role in the music world. So tune in at 6.30 p.m. on Facebook or come here. We're open. There's plenty of room for social distancing on Wednesday nights. Uh, or uh, tune in on our website as well, woodmontbaptist.com. It's going to be a, a fun, uh, hopefully enlightening and engaging opportunity. We're starting a new series this month as we continue to walk through Isaiah. It took me three weeks to get through chapter one, so we've got to go faster. There's 66 chapters, so we're going to hit all of chapter two today. I jumped in on uh, Morgan's class and my class, our Sunday school. Sorry, we're calling them life groups now. Life groups, because of the group that you do life with. So we jumped in on our life groups call this morning um, with uh, Dr. Hickson and uh, the Family Matters class, and uh, they were still in chapter one. I was like, you guys have got to pick up the pace. We're going to start moving faster now. So you're going to have to go faster as you go through the scriptures. Chapter one, as we hit for the whole last month, brought us to that conviction of sin, looking at the reality of who we are as humans, which that conviction of sin is not a guilty, beat myself up feeling. It's a good thing that leads us to repentance. It leads us to turn away from the cliff that we've inevitably been heading towards, and it compels us to turn around and go back to the loving God who stands ready to forgive us with open arms. That's a good thing. That's where we find redemption. And we talked about that theme of redemption last week, and we're going to continue with that idea throughout chapter 2, 3, 4, 5, which we're going to hit this month in February, as we see that the greatest impediment to our redemption is our own selves. We have to get out of our own way because we stand in the way of what God wants to do with us, which is both for our good and for his glory. We're going to see this theme of, of the futility, the, the vanity of chasing after the fleeting things of earth and being called to a higher power. Before we dive into our text for today, let me ask this question. What determines our happiness more? Is it our present circumstances or our future? What determines what makes us feel secure? What makes us feel settled is it what we're going through now, or is it something we believe will happen later in the future? If we're honest, I think most of us will admit that our sense of well-being, our sense of satisfaction, our sense of even identity is more so based on our immediate surroundings. If we're honest, too, I think most of us, when we think about the future, it can induce anxiety, right? What's going to happen with my job? What's going to happen with my family? What's going to happen with my 
neighborhood, with my home? Am I gonna be successful in some endeavor? Am I gonna be happy and productive? Thinking about the future can produce a lot of anxiety more often than not. But we're gonna see today how the prophet Isaiah in these first five verses of chapter two says, no, 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 you guys are aiming too low. You're, you're thinking about the, the next 10 years, maybe the next 20 years, but you're aiming too low. You're not looking far enough ahead. Jude and I got to play golf recently in Florida and at this really small par three, uh, nine hole course. And uh, I let Jude drive. I don't know if that's legal or not. He's 11 and he's tall and he can reach the pedals and everything. So I don't think it was dangerous, but he drove the golf cart. And at first he was looking you know, really close in front of the golf cart and he was all over the place. And I was like, Jude, you gotta aim higher, buddy. Look, look higher. I remember hearing that in like driver's ed or something. You remember that? You should aim high when you're driving. And once he started doing that, it straightened the cart out and he kept it right perfectly on the path. He could anticipate when the turns were coming and he was able to, to keep it in the lane a lot better by aiming high. Today, I think the prophet Isaiah is calling us to aim high. We get so fixated on the immediate things of this earth that we only see about 10 feet in front of us, and we end up making a mess of our lives. Today, I want us to look towards the far future, the end of the story. The problem of, of looking too low is that we forget. Like Rachel said, we forget that we as Christians know how this all ends. The story of everything ever, the only true story, the story that we are currently smack dab in the middle of, we know how that story ends. But we get so caught up in the here and now that our security, our well-being, all those things rise and fall each day with our constantly changing circumstances. And yes, our circumstances are constantly changing. Over the next few weeks, I pray that we'll heed the call from the prophet Isaiah to lift our eyes higher, to aim our lives, the trajectory of our lives, our desires, our work, our families, our hobbies, everything towards eternity with the one true God, an eternity that is sure and certain. C.S. Lewis wrote this in his classic work, Mere Christianity. Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. Aim high at the eternal glory of heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Matthew 6, seek first the kingdom, the eternal kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. But seek first the kingdom. If you don't seek first the kingdom, you don't get either. That's the irony of it. So we need to recover an eternal, heavenly perspective in order to settle our souls in such a way that we can live this earthly life with real, abundant freedom and grace and joy and confidence and rooted in the power of Christ that we stand. Jonathan Edwards, the Puritan preacher, prayed, Lord, stamp eternity on my eyeballs. I love that. Stamp eternity 
on my eyeballs. He wanted to see everything in his world through the lens of an eternity with God. He wanted to have the end in mind everywhere he went and with everything that he did and said. The future of our eternity with the Lord is the core of what we call hope. Robust Christian hope. Christian hope empowers us to live a life that is rooted in something far deeper and far greater than our current situation. It enables us to flourish and thrive in this life and in the next when our hope becomes reality. I think Ray Ortland is right in his assessment of this chapter being about two things, the transforming power of hope and the transforming power of humility. The transforming power of hope and humility. If you want one of those Isaiah journals, by the way, they're five bucks. They're in both the north and south lobbies. I encourage you to pick one up. Art gave me his uh, from another church. It was great. I'm using it. It's great. You can make notes in it. It's just the scripture and room for notes, but it's a great way to write down what the Lord calls to your mind as we walk through this book together. If you don't have five bucks, just take one. I know you're good for it, okay? We'll just make an agreement between us. Uh, Ray Orland's right, transforming hope and, and humility. Why does Isaiah link hope and humility together? Because we use the idol of self-advancement to try to stabilize ourselves. We try to stabilize our own lives. We try to create this buffered self in order to just survive the present. And that buffered self is inevitably inward focused. It's full of fear and doubt and anxiety. But as we see in this text today, God can replace our fear and pride with hope and humility. First, we're gonna see the power of hope. Look at Isaiah chapter two, verse two. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills. That's where we're headed towards, the day when the, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be above all other houses, all other worship. Back in Isaiah's time, people would try to, you know, build their religious shrines and temples on the highest hills they could find. It was like an effort to try to get to God, right? Try to be physically close to where they believed their gods lived. And Isaiah is saying here that by the end of the story, the house of the one true God will be elevated above all the other attempts to get to God, all the other religious attempts to try to attain holiness, to try to attain divinity, are gonna be exposed as fruitless and worthless. And this is gonna have a global impact. There's this beautiful international thing that happens on the day of the Lord. Look at the rest of verse two and verse three. And all the nations shall flow up to it, and many peoples shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. It's this neat juxtaposition of gravity, right? They're gonna be a river of humanity, every nation, tribe, and tongue that flows uphill to the mountain of the house of the Lord 
For out of the central city of God's people, out of Zion, out of Jerusalem, out of the, the core of who God's people are to be, is going to flow God's perfect law and the life-giving word of God. And we know that that word became flesh. John chapter 1, verse 14. The idol of, of self-advancement uh, you know, comes crashing down when the Lord's house is elevated above all others. The word of the Lord, life-giving word, comes to us from God's people. And every nation, tribe, and tongue will respond with gratitude and praise. And look how good it is when people are drawn to Christ. Look at verse 4. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war no more. It reminds me of the old African-American spiritual, right? We go down by the riverside, going to lay our burdens down. We're going to study war no more. Ain't going to study war no more. Ain't going to study war no more. Going to lay down my burden down at the riverside. You carry a burden that you don't need to carry. And you can lay that burden down. And on that day, we will have no more burdens. And there will be no more yellow ribbons on mailboxes for families who have shipped off a son or a daughter to fight overseas. No more military industrial complex. No more arms dealers. No more war profiteers nor war atrocities either. On that day, there'll be no more war crimes because Jesus himself becomes the perfect judge of all, bringing perfect justice to every nation, tribe, and tongue. That sounds good, right? Do you long for that? Do you feel an aching in your bones for a day when all will be made right with the world? Good, I hope so. The power of the hope that we have is that it informs how we live now. You could say it enlightens us in the present. Look at verse five. Oh, house of Jacob. Isaiah's just pleading. Oh, house of Jacob, come. Let us walk in the light of the Lord. It's a good place to be. Walk in this enlightened knowledge of what the Lord's going to do. The invitation is for you and me to walk right now in light of this future hope, to aim high, remembering that this whole earthly existence is all going somewhere, and that somewhere is good. Then we can become like Isaiah. There's an evangelistic component here. We can become a prophetic voice in our world that is calling everyone to look at this reality and the hope beyond our immediate situation. We call the nations and our neighbors to look toward a mutually beneficial life together, a life of peace and prosperity. The Old Testament calls that shalom. Let's allow the promises of God to have their full impact on our lives now as they enlighten us and allow us to walk in the light of the Lord today. That would be a great place to stop for me. I would love that. But Isaiah knows there's a problem. There's an impediment to us walking in the light of the Lord. That impediment is pride. 
We can't help ourselves in our pride from being short-sighted and aiming low. We can't get out of our own way because the tyranny of the urgent, of the here and now, pulls our focus off of the hope of glory that is ours in Christ. How quickly we, we settle back into our self-centered routines, our worry-ridden, short-sighted existence. <clears throat> so now Isaiah wants to show us the power. <clears throat> Excuse me, I'm going to be fine. <clears throat> I have a water right there, Jude. Throw it to me. Good toss. The transforming power of humility. Humility has the ability to keep our eyes focused on the hope of glory and off of the path right in front of us. It's not a pretty picture, though, because human pride is a terrible thing. It is the greatest impediment to us seeing the world as it ought to be. Isaiah shows us here that pride is a pervasive sin that has infected every aspect of this world, and it must be dealt with honestly and swiftly. First, we see how pride exists in our own people, God's own people. Isaiah's quick to point out it's not just those Hollywood celebrities that are so egotistical and prideful. We love to point our fingers to others and say, that person's very proud. That person's very prideful. But we don't like to point the finger at ourselves. Jesus told us to deal with the log in our own eye before we start to deal with the speck in our brother's eye. So let's start with us, with God's people. Look at verses 6 through 8. For you have rejected your people, the house of Jacob, because they are full of things from the east and of fortune tellers like the Philistines. And they strike hands with the children of foreigners. That means they make deals. Their land is filled with silver and gold, and there's no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses, and there's no end to their chariots. Their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. Three times in those three verses, we see that word filled or, or full of. Filled. You know, God's people, including the church, can be filled with worldly wisdom, like the fortune tellers from the East, can be filled with money, can be filled with power, and yet still be filled with idols and be ineffective in the world. Our study in Acts last year showed us there's only one thing the church needs to be filled with in order to be effective in the world, carrying out our purpose. And that one thing is the Holy Spirit. If we have the Holy Spirit filling us, we have the power of God in us to go forth and do incredible things. In the book of Acts, it was all these ragtag group of disciples doing these amazing world-changing things, not by human might, but by the power of the Spirit in them. That's all we need. But the problem is that people feel empty. God's people feel empty. They're not satisfied with the Lord. They're not satisfied with the Holy Spirit. They're not filled by God. The only one who can ultimately fill, by the way. And so they do is they fill their lives with these worldly, fleeting ideas and, and comforts because they're trying to fill that void. Isaiah reaches, therefore, a sad conclusion about God's people. 
in verse 9. So man is humbled, and each one is brought low. Do not forgive them. Brought low. If you don't humble yourself, it will happen to you. You will be brought low. It's a passive humbling that happens to you, not by your own decision. People who refuse to humble themselves end up being humbled. And the tragedy here is when God's people are so filled with the vain things of this world that they have no filling of the Holy Spirit. They have no sense of God in their lives at all. They just come to church and kind of go through the motions. Forgiveness is not sought or even welcomed by them. That's why he says, don't forgive them. He's saying their hearts are so hard, God, how could you possibly forgive them? It's not that God doesn't love these people anymore. It breaks his heart. But it's, if God's people become so filled with pride and with self-interest and navel-gazing, God wouldn't be doing them a favor by paying them back with blessing. That would only reinforce their idea that they can save themselves, which leads to destruction. Their first need is to be emptied of their fullness and then to be convicted and repent and filled with the Holy Spirit. John Oswald, a great theologian, writes in his commentary on Isaiah, proud, self-sufficient Israel can become the witness to the greatness of God only when she has been reduced to helplessness by his just judgment and then restored to life by his unmerited grace. God loves us too much to just go on believing that we can save ourselves. He loves us too much to go on being puffed up with pride heading towards disaster. God will judge the pride, not only of his people, but of the world. He will have his day. Look at verse 12 through 16. There's pride in the world that the Lord's going to deal with. For the Lord, Yahweh of hosts, angel armies, has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. <clears throat> against all the cedars of Lebanon, lofty and lifted up, and against all the oaks of Bashan, <clears throat> against all the lofty mountains, and against all the uplifted hills, against every high tower, and against every fortified wall, against all the ships of Tarshish, and against all the beautiful craft. This is every worldly thing that people have made with their hands, all the powerful things of creation even, that the Lord is going to humble and bring low because he's judging the pride of the whole world. Again, he's showing us here that people cannot save themselves. Great mountains, great hills, high towers, walls, ships. When God's kingdom comes, they all will be reduced to naught. What a day that will be, the day of the Lord. Keep going, verse 17. And the haughtiness of man shall be humbled, and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day, and idols shall utterly pass away. If that strikes you as God being some kind of megalomaniac, the Lord alone will be exalted. If, if you feel this unease about the Lord saying he's going to be the only one that is lifted high, please understand that's not what's happening here. The most loving 
gracious and kind thing that God could possibly do is to get our attention off of ourselves and onto the greatness of his glory. That's the most loving thing he could do for us because nothing else will make us happier. Nothing else will make him happier than us being fully satisfied in him. You know, Augustine said the natural state of human beings is to be curved in on ourselves, in curvatus se in, in Latin, to be bent in on ourselves. The Lord in his grace allows us to unbend and to live freely in the light of his glory and grace. I pray that we can understand this. So many people think of God as a mean old man who's just waiting to punish us, waiting to zap us when we mess up. He's waiting to judge our, our bad behavior. But, but here's the thing, cheer up, right? Our bad behavior doesn't scratch the surface of how truly needy and desperate we actually are. Our worst things we've ever done in this life are, are paling in comparison to the fact that we were born sinful according to Psalm 51, that we were born helpless and in need of redemption from one who could save. We are so much worse off than we thought we could possibly be, but here's the good news. The good news is that we are more loved and accepted by the high and holy God than we ever dared to dream. He knows every hair on our head, every word before it's on our tongue, and he still says, come home, come to me freely, don't bring anything of your own, just come to me, and I will wrap my arms around you. Sin infects every part of us, and when we understand that us perceiving God as a threat is just an act of arrogance. It's an act of pride to see God as a threat. The truth is, is that God's glory is the greatest thing that we could ever experience for ourselves. The, the best news imaginable then is that one day the Lord will come and remove every barrier to his glory. We're going to experience his glory fully. And that's an exciting thing, but it's also terrifying. Look at verse 19. The day of the Lord is indeed terrifying. <clears throat> People shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. It's an awesome day when the Lord shows up and there will be judgment, but God's judgment is not something for us as Christians to fear what God's judgment means is that he's going to deconstruct this world and make it all new again. Restore everything back to the way it should be. When all the wrongs are going to be put right, come Lord Jesus. The poet John Donne, in, in one of his sonnets, he understood the need for God to come and, and wash away all the surface problems and remind him of the goodness of God's glory, that he needs God to do that. He wrote these lines, batter my heart, three-personed God, for you, as yet but knock, breathe, shine, and seek to mend, that I may rise and stand, or throw me and bend your force to break, blow, burn, and make me new. Take me to you, imprison me, for I except you enthrall me, shall never be free, nor ever chast, except you ravish me. 
Some of us need to be awakened. Some of us need to be reawakened to the goodness of God's glory, to the delight that comes from being in the glory of God, even if it means allowing God to come and humble us, which is not always a fun process. Thirdly, we've seen pride in God's people, pride in the world. Now we're going to see pride in idols of our own making. Look at verses 20 and 21. In that day, mankind will cast away their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they made for themselves to worship. To the moles and to the bats. You know how I feel about bats. To enter the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. Pride deceives us by causing us to think that the things that we made ourselves, nice shiny things, things of gold and silver are worth our worship and worthy of our praise. We've talked about this some in our, our midweek series on work, that we're tempted to worship our work, the things that our hands have done. We're tempted to look at the things that we've built to define us and give us a sense of security. That's worshiping our work, and that is an idol. Idols give the illusion that we're powerful and that we're in control, because look what we did, look what we made. But when the Lord stands upon the earth in his unmistakable glory, those that don't delight in his power and in his control will be terrified. On that day, they're going to see how worth, uh, worthless all their cherished idols actually are. Our idols are precious to us. We've worked hard to craft them carefully. We've, we've put sweat, blood, and tears into our idols, and they're precious this is the point of J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. I think every time Evan preaches, he's going to mention Lord of the Rings, so I thought I would too. We've been watching it on Saturday mornings at my house. Uh, the, the ring of power corrupts everyone who holds it, and yet they call it precious. It makes them love it, but it destroys them. And it cannot be wielded for good, therefore the only thing to be done with it in order to save the world is to destroy it. And the only place that it can be destroyed and in the fires of Mount Doom. And here's what's fascinating. Tolkien understood that one of the major keys to this life is not just what we lay hold of and accumulate, but the key to life is also what we throw away, what we dispense of. The Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3, verse 8, said, For his sake, for Christ's sake, I've suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish. I've tossed them away, dispensed of them, in order that I may gain Christ. That's the goal. What golden idols do we cherish today as essential to our happiness and to our self-worth, to our well-being, to our identity? What do we need to throw away today? in order to fully possess the one treasure that we truly cannot live without, the indwelling of the high and holy God who brings us to his glory when we are completely filled with him. 
Finally, Isaiah gives us a summary commandment in verse 22. Stop regarding man. Stop is a word we use a lot in my house. We have a nine-month-old puppy and three small kids. Stop regarding man. In whose nostrils is breath, for what account is he? You know, today when you watch, I don't know if you're gonna watch Super Bowl, I like the Super Bowl. When you watch, you know, Pat Mahomes come into the stadium, some guy from Nashville is dressing him, former member of Woodmont, uh, is dressing him in this really nice suit, and you see him walk into the stadium, you say, man, that guy, he's got it made. That guy's living the good life. That guy's done so much to achieve the success that we all want so much, that's what life's about. We're far too easily impressed. We're far too easily impressed. What we're learning in these midweek series is that the guys who are probably the best in their fields, the women who really achieve greatness in their fields, are ones we never hear about. The heroes of heaven are not going to be the heroes of earth. <clears throat> the reality is that the breath in Patrick Mahomes' nostrils, even though he's 25, if he plays until he's uh, Brady's age, we'll be watching him in 2039, by the way, Super Bowl 71. If he plays that long, great, but the reality is the breath in his nostrils is going to go out, just like all of us, that our bodies are destined for the dust, and it's going to come sooner than we think. Humankind is frail, but the power of Christian hope and humility is ours today. Pride keeps our aim low. It keeps it on the shiny things of this world, the fleeting things of this earth. Let's aim higher. Let's aim at heaven and get earth thrown in as a bargain. Do you believe today that there's enough glory in God to satisfy you, to make you happy, to bring you joy forever? If you don't, why? What failing have you found in God? What shortness have you found in his glory? The gospel promises that his glory will remake the world. Stop valuing the idols, the people that you uh, respect and admire. Stop valuing those things that you not only might lose, but inevitably must lose. Learn to enjoy God. Come, let's walk in the awesome light of the Lord. I promise it's a good place to be. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you do love us enough to come and remove the pride from our hard hearts. Teach us, oh God, what it means to be fully satisfied in you. Help us to see your glory as that which is above any earthly pleasure. Help us to understand that you are making all things new ever since the central act of the gospel, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we can claim victory over sin and darkness forever. And that we know now that this is all going somewhere. That even the work of our hands, our families, that all of this one day will be part of a bigger story. And that you're using every pain that we endure, every grief, every loss, that somehow... You are working all things together for our good and for your glory. God, we want more of your glory. We want to see your glory. We want to be filled with your glory. We want a deeper, richer experience of your glory. Help us to understand 
that your glory is better than anything else on this earth. Help us to chase after it hard. Help us to love it from the bottom of our heart and to experience it more and more as we grow in grace and the knowledge of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.